Hi, welcome to the podcast series Healthy Dose. I am Yogini Oak, your host for this episode. These are difficult times we are living in. The second wave of COVID-19 has hit India with ferocity. Just when the slight lull of normalcy was setting in, we were in the middle of an unforeseen rise of cases. In this moving landscape, countries are thinking about vaccine passports. To put simplistically, vaccine passports are certifications given upon vaccination that allow you to do things that you may otherwise not be allowed to do in a pandemic. Vaccine passports are also being seen by some as a means of reducing vaccine hesitancy. In the first 5 episodes of Healthy Dose, we have seen how vaccines are taken from the lab to the people. In the third episode of Healthy Dose, we have discussed how vaccines incidentally affect life outcomes. In the sixth and the final episode, we will be speaking to Madhavi Sengutthuvan, a doctoral candidate at the Center for Biomedical Ethics at the National University of Singapore. Today, we will be discussing vaccine passports and whether vaccination status should be a criteria for accessing normalcy. Vaccine passports are not a new concept. In the final episode of the first season of Healthy Dose, we will be discussing the concept of vaccine passports itself, its historical precedents, and its infrastructural and technological challenges in the current times. Let us dive in. Welcome to the podcast, Matvi. Thank you so much for having me here on the podcast, Yogini. It's lovely to be here. Today we will be speaking about the interesting and the very contemporarily relevant topic of vaccine passports or immunity passports. We've been hearing this term for quite a while, uh, especially since there has been a global rollout of vaccinations. But before we get into that, we'll talk to Matvi about who she is, what is her body of work, and what is the current work that she does. Matvi, on that note, could you introduce yourself a bit and what are your areas of interest in research and otherwise? Thank you, Yogini. Um, just to introduce myself very briefly, I am a lawyer by training. Uh, I'm a research associate, just like you'd mentioned, at the Center for Biomedical Ethics. with the Yongluland School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore so i'm also currently pursuing my phd particularly in public health ethics and on the specific topic of developing an ethical framework to combat stigma in the aftermath of covid-19 and future infectious disease outbreaks so my primary areas of research interest lie in anti discrimination stigma racism etc particularly in the public health setting and how that can be connected to the chronic as well as the infectious disease settings so this is my main focus areas of research but i also dabble uh, quite a bit in clinical ethics and research ethics the areas that you research on are actually quite relevant to the topic we are going to discuss that is of immunity certifications or vaccine passports so i i just wanted to ask you can you explain how do people get affected by more stigmatization in the background of a public health emergency like covid-19 so from the very advent of covid-19 and 
who are we kidding? Way, way before that, right? Stigma has been a social determinant of health. Stigma continues to be a social and public determinant of health. And as a result, stigma in itself becomes a carrier of health-related conditions, uh, health-related inequities, um, affects health-seeking behavior, how um, COVID is continued to be called China virus or Kung flu, etc., which are unacceptable and stigmatizing names. A lot of different uh, communities are marginalized simply by virtue of their living conditions. And by this, I refer to persons living in dormitories, uh, migrant workers, those from lower-income family households, destitute, elderly, uh, and nursing, uh, long-term care and nursing homes, etc. So it's just a lot of different ways in which increased susceptibility to the disease has also increased the level of stigma involved or the like, level of stigma that's expressed against them. So now stigma need not necessarily be negative at all points of time. Stigma can also be positive, which we see in mask wearing behavior, wherein uh, people who are not wearing masks are, you know, positively stigmatized against in the hope that the public health aim of making them wear masks can be achieved. So similar kinds of, you know, adversarial versus positive stigma exists on various different lenses, exists for vaccinations as well, and this comes relevant to vaccine passports as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's such a broad social determinant of health. And I believe that this area of research is probably going to take the rest of my life. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, as you mentioned, people who possibly are the most vulnerable to illnesses also end up getting doubly vulnerable in a way because of stigma associated and lack of protections in, in terms of social care or healthcare access, etc. That is actually quite central to the discussion on vaccine passports. For the understanding of our listeners, can you just broadly tell us what does this idea of vaccine passport entail? Sure. So vaccine passport in and of itself is a slight bit of a misnomer because it's quite specific. So when we're talking about immunity passports, now that's something a lot broader and encompasses not just vaccination-based passports, but also serological antibody test-based passports. So just to clarify or rather taking a few steps back, immunity passports are essentially a kind of documentation of proof that is required in order for a person to undertake certain identified or, you know, specific activities. And the immunity passports can be of two types on the basis of use. One is to travel internationally. So that is essentially an eponym, and it's basically what it is. It is a passport that allows you to travel internationally and move across uh, various different countries, etc. And uh, the second type is basically a certificate of authentication or a pass, which allows you to carry on activities in all probability within the domestic setting. So it could be for access to swimming pools, access to public arenas, concerts, uh, restaurants, it could be access to simple services or perhaps congregate services. So 
that's a more localized or domestic implementation of a vaccine passport. And on the basis of the prerequisites, like I had mentioned again, we have vaccine passports, which basically require documentation of proof of vaccine, of, of being vaccinated against uh, the particular the disease in uh, concern, or serological antibody tests, which are essentially wherein uh, a person has acquired COVID uh, previously and hence has antibodies uh, uh, which provide them to a certain degree some level of immunity. And uh, yeah, so basically these are the various different identified types of vaccine passports uh, or immunity passports. And of course, these have been around for ages. There's, there's nothing completely novel about them. As I understand, vaccine passports have been quite polarizing in terms of how they are understood or how they are perceived uh, by the global health community. Can you tell us why is that the case? Um, the polarizing nature of vaccine passports essentially stems from the consequences on the one hand and then the philosophical or conceptual logic behind it on the other, right? So why are people so polarized against it? Let's let's look at it from a conceptual point of view. Now, if you take a utilitarian viewpoint, for instance, which uh, supports the introduction of vaccine passports on the condition that they minimize the risk of harm and uh, maximize the potential for benefits uh, or to, to put it in very short terms, for the greater good, vaccine passports are expected or necessary. And hence, from a utilitarian or consequentialist viewpoint, this is fully supported. Right. So people who believe in this viewpoint are automatically bound to believe that vaccine passports are likely for the benefit of the rest of the world because it is for the greater good. And uh, on the other hand, you might have a more communitarian perspective where people are looking at it from the perspective of their communities or what benefits the vaccine passports might have for the communities themselves and not just for the individual as a form of libertarian, individualistic libertarianism. So communitarianism on that front believes that vaccine passports might not necessarily provide this kind of benefit. And in fact, it could result in harm for the community as a whole, just because an individual or who has had the privilege of being vaccinated gets to have the privilege of enjoying the freedoms that come with it. So these, so, so looking at it from a very philosophical angle, this is, I would say, one of the more pol polarizing uh, viewpoints. The other is also dependent on the lens that you wear when you look vaccine passports as an individual, whether you are looking at it as a way forward or means for you as an individual, or whether you are looking at it from a more humanistic perspective, whether you are looking at it from, uh, you know, what will happen if I get a vaccine passport and I use it unconditionally at the potential expense of others in my community. So whether you are looking out for others in your community, and that stems from a more individualistic perspective. But this also translates to a state perspective, wherein a state seeking to formulate policy on vaccine passports also needs to look at it from a political versus a humanistic lens, right? So is your main goal uh, 
vaccine nationalism? Is your main goal, uh, you know, improvement of trade or tourism or industry or whatever it is for your own country's benefit? Or is it from a more humanistic, societal, global health perspective, wherein you are looking at it as the aim is now to achieve herd immunity. The aim is to ensure that more people are vaccinated. And, you know, we can't have anything jeopardizing that at present. So it, it really does depend on the perspective or the lens that you wear. Why do you think it is considered harmful from a libertarian or a communitarian perspective? I mean, how would it affect a community's health if, say, one person has a vaccine passport and others don't? So just to clarify, I don't necessarily think that it will be harmful, more so that there is potential for harm, right? Uh, one of the main uh, reasons for this is the lack of data or rather the extreme uncertainties, epidemiological uncertainties that revolve around the shortage of data. So if the aim is to not do any harm from a Milesian perspective or, or like basically looking at the harm principle, if the aim is to do no harm, when you have a shortage of data on transmissibility rates, you know that you might be safe, even though you know there is question as to true efficacy not every vaccine has a 95% efficacy rate. So there is little data, there is a shortage, an actual shortage of data on the transmissibility rates, on the uh, efficacy itself, actual efficacy itself. Yes, okay, people aren't dying all the time. So we know that there is definite le level of efficacy to these vaccines, but at the same time, there is a shortage of data on transmissibility. So you might be safe, but you don't know whether you are a carrier for the infection and you are passing it on to the two others who might be easily susceptible to the uh, infection. So that is one way, potential way in which harm might be caused to the community and the society. So considering the potential harm that may ensue from an exercise of this sort, is there any legal mandate that has been created against vaccine passports or immunity passports? Sure. So against vaccine passports, I'd say the only very apparent sort of, uh, uh, not necessarily a mandate, but a strong discouragement in that sense has come from the WHO, right? Yeah. So the WHO yeah, yeah. has strongly discouraged countries from employing immunity certifications or vaccine passports in the current setting, given the lack of data or the shortage of data, and given the kind of uncertainties around vaccine distribution in itself and uh, efficacy, the idea of long COVID, which is particularly relevant for serological or antibody-based test uh, um, immunity certificates. So there, there's a, like, I, I wouldn't say uh, there are any mandates against vaccine passports, like a legal mandate against it. But historically, there have been multiple legal mandates for vaccine passports right, or immunity certificates. So um, in the past, uh, before the international health regulations, um, we had the international sanitary regulations prior to 1969, uh, wherein uh, vaccination checkpoints at boarding stations, etc., were, uh, were set up to test for uh, to test check whether you have you have been vaccinated against small smallpox, for instance. 
And this was particularly important when uh, mass groups were conducting religious pilgrimages to uh, Mecca for Hajj, etc. And uh, so it's absolutely nothing new, right? This was mandated since the, like, the, the very early 20th century in itself. Uh, a more recent sort of mandate comes with the international health regulations, right? Uh, which is specifically for yellow fever. Uh, now, yellow fever is a vector-borne disease, which is endemic to specific regions of Latin America and Africa. And so the IHR basically permits all member countries to require proof of vaccination or the yellow card from travelers before they enter uh, other countries or their own boundaries. So uh, now this is a sort of specific type of uh, vaccination passport, right? Because it's, it's also a very interesting type of vaccination passport because you don't necessarily need vaccination in order to enter the endemic regions, but you do need it to come back to your home country or travel anywhere else. So that's a very interesting sort of uh, difference that you can see. But it's also very interesting that this happens to be the only disease under the IHR which has a mandatable sort of uh, effect. It is the only mandate, legal mandate in that sense. So governments across the globe are legitimately permitted to carry out a legal mandate uh, requiring travelers to be vaccinated against yellow fever. Do you think stigma plays a role in this particular certification that you mentioned with respect to yellow fever? I certainly think that uh, this does have significant stigmatizing effect or stigmatizing halo around it, right? Because there are, like most regions that are endemic to yellow fever do carry that certain stigma around it. A lot of people who, are, who wish to, tra who seek to travel are actually, in a sense, prevented from traveling without a mandatory vaccination in the first place. So there is that extra added layer of security or extra added protective measure that they need to undertake before they can freely travel to one of these endemic regions, right? So that automatically creates a stigma halo around uh, these diseases, right? And it's not necessarily limited to yellow fever. It's, it's uh, this sort of disease-based stigma is endemic to so many other diseases as well. Like the number of times we've heard about jokes on Ebola, right? So it's not, it's not really something new, whether it's Ebola, whether it's sickle cell anemia, whether it's SARS, whether it's MERS. We continue to hear disease-related stigmatizing comments and jokes and uh, uh, hate crimes being committed as a result of this stigma. So... Yeah, so I don't think there is a, you know, any, there is, I think there is complete legitimacy to any of these fears about uh, being stigmatized. And I think it's certainly something that countries need to be cognizant of. As much as they affect access and there's a potential of harm or there's a potential of economic benefit, how much do vaccine passports uh, interact with the ethical principle of equity? That's something we've discussed in detail in one of our previous episodes. So would just like to have your comment on that. Absolutely, Yogi. I think that equity is one of the major ethical concerns, right, when it comes to vaccine passports. 
for all of the benefits that vaccine passports have, including increased mobility, uh, better trade, industrial benefits, economic benefits, um, uh, you know, uh, more individualistic sort of well-being and trickling down of this well-being towards the rest of the society. Despite all of these advantages that vaccine passports seem to have, there is still at the end of the day a, a major question of equity because vaccine passports are a privilege. And why are they a privilege? Because vaccines are a privilege. Immunization continues to be far out of reach for a majority of the world. You see that higher income or developed countries have more access to uh, vaccines than uh, your lower or middle income countries. Um, there are so many countries in Africa that haven't even started their vaccination programs yet. India continues to be at a only seven, you know, people out of hundred persons per population every day. So it's quite, uh, you know, a concern for equity. Uh, really, uh, there are serious equity-related concerns because it directly uh, connects to the uh, attribute of justice as well, right? Because like we'd mentioned before, vulnerable populations who tend to have higher rates of susceptibility to the infection, those who are living in congregate settings like migrant workers, low-income families, they usually aren't in the priority list, which means by inhibiting access, you are their access to vaccines, you're essentially like pushing out or excluding an entire category or segment of people who are yet to be vaccinated. Given these circumstances, is it really fair? If fairness becomes a myth in that in that sense, is it really fair to expect that the privilege of vaccine passports be given to a specific few? So that is again a very uh, 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 coming from a Rawlsian perspective, if I may. It it does you know these these concerns are far out there and are the main arguments against vaccine passports currently. Right? So because uh, some of these groups are left out of the picture, uh, and this also includes groups like pregnant women, children, persons with severe allergic reactions, not necessarily just vulnerable in the traditional marginalized sense, but also in the vaccination program sense. So significant groups of people are left out of the picture. And this also directly implies that there is a widening gap between the rich and the poor, and there is an increase in classism as well, because as more and more vaccines are brought into the supply, unless there is a staggered, safe, and ethically appropriate method of distribution of vaccines, in essence, once vaccine passports start becoming a thing, we see that countries that share epidemiological characteristics, like those that have similar levels of infection rates or similar levels of, uh, you know, transmissibility rates, etc., fatality rates, they they will tend to share borders or bubbles in that sense, right? So vaccine passports will be started out towards these countries, and that, in a sense, creates that higher income bubble versus that lower in, lower income bubble, right? Like wherein lower countries from the lower income bubble, which don't have as high access to vaccines or supply, vaccine supply, end up 
having to only you know conduct trade or business or leisure based travel whatever it is only amongst these countries and that is also if only right there is no absolute certainty that these countries might share a vaccine passport sort of bilateral agreement in that sense but in essence as it stands currently it is expected that vac- va- vaccine passports will be implemented only amongst countries that have similar uh, epidemiological characteristics and that in itself will end up widening the division that already exists madhvi you mentioned about how countries will share you know vaccine passports with countries with similar epidemiological characteristics i was just curious as to when especially right now there are new strains uh, coming up every day there are uh, new epidemiological developments that are happening every day even with respect to the uh, spread of the virus itself how do you think can this tool of vaccine passports or immunity passports be framed at the current juncture when we don't know how long uh, does a vaccine you know protect you against the disease or uh, you don't know whether it protects against a particular strain or other such technical challenges i think this is exactly the sort of uh, hesitancy that looms over most of the discouragement over vaccine passports right so the lack of data is exactly why countries across the globe that have the ability to implement vaccine passports large numbers of their population have already been immunized against covid right so with the increase in the number of strains uh with the increase in you know infection rates in some countries whereas in some countries it's you know like next to zero there's it's it's, it's a constantly fluctuating uh you know uh, situation in this uh, situation of constant flux i do believe that vaccine passports are essentially going to be a privilege that can be taken away at any point of time right there is no absolute certainty that a cert- that you vaccine passports will be you know the way forward and that you know this is how things are going to happen henceforth that if today uh, singapore decides to allow uh, vaccine passports for people coming in from various different countries that they're going to keep allowing this tomorrow regardless of the changes in uh, the the epidemiological nature of uh, the covid uh, covid-19 pandemic one very simple analogy is the green corridors that are coming up like how there are travel bubbles within countries without the need for vaccinations in the first place it's very similar like once there is an increase in infections in that country it automatically that green cor- corridor can be stopped right so there is nothing certain about these decisions and i do believe that if more data comes if and when more data comes in the vaccinations that are available at hand for us are not uh, protective against certain new strains whatever whenever those come up then i do believe that until boosters for that particular strain or uh, better vaccines come up uh the idea of a vaccine passport will continue to be staggered and the implementation might be faced uh will definitely be faced but it might be interrupted for sure 
yeah uh, as you mentioned vaccine passports need not be like this permanent certificate but it will be more like a something that's a privilege uh, that can be taken away at any point and uh, i think that that that's why authorities or uh, public health services will have to constantly monitor uh, these things in some sense like uh, I, i believe the infrastructural cost of vaccine passports could be quite a lot in that sense right if you to constantly keep on monitoring when it's such a constantly moving landscape i completely agree on that front and i think that infrastructure and the resources to build that infrastructure is extremely important right and that's again where the divide between low and middle income countries and more developed eurocentric or global north countries also comes into play right so you have estonia's digital certification scheme by the end of april estonia hopes to create digital certification of covid vaccination for uh, every single person that's been vaccinated in estonia and a simple qr code can basically grant you access to uh, various neighboring countries the eu is planning on having a similar system that's purely digital based on a simple qr code based mechanism uh israel with its uh, incredible vaccination rates of 115 per 100 persons it it's quite incredible really i i, I honestly don't know how <laughs> that's even happened but uh, the the idea that they have a green pass that is now basically needed for access to literally anything right from restaurants to swimming pools to uh, concerts to uh, you know public parks etc etc it's just go it's it's endless the list right so obviously countries that have the resources to implement this sort of infrastructure perhaps able to do it a lot more successfully than say in a setting like india where it's near impossible to track the you know like even like the kind of testing rates and uh, of course i think India has also made significant improvements uh, and inroads in terms of the uh, arogya setu app etc so it can't all be attributable just to the high income countries i do believe that lower and middle income countries are also trying as much as possible in this extent but the ubiquity of technology is simply not as well matched with lower and middle income countries as it is with higher income countries and that is certainly an inequity that definitely must come into light as well so yeah i think it will be difficult to constantly monitor but i think technology has also made it easier in that sense to to do this to carry out this monitoring work uh, the the downside to this is of course uh, technology comes with its own concerns right its own disadvantages privacy related concerns so a lot of Uh, people are hesitant about the fact that their uh, vaccination status their medical records might be easily accessible to the next average barman right so it's like you know or swimming pool entry gate like it's just incredible seeing how much of your medical data might be might end up being accessible so i suppose in that instance it is very much important for governments to ensure that the extent of data that's collected by virtue of your vaccination is not shared through this technology as well 
So whatever technology is being used, it is important that there are limits on the technology that can be shared through the QR code, through, uh, you know, there, there are adequate data management and storage policies in place. So states will have to ensure these uh, protections, basic cybersecurity protections as well. Of course, on the flip side, there's also uh, the question of fraudulent certification and uh, corruption in that sense. Right Now, there's nothing new about that. It exists for vaccine passports. It even exists for yellow fever uh, vaccine passports and so on. So when that happens, is it really a you know a fair game? Do people really re- recognize that fraudulent certificates issued on the basis of an individualistic or uh, a self uh, or in their self interest? Does it uh, it will it might end up having severe public health and uh, population uh, uh, consequences for the population? But that also implies states have that additional responsibility to ensure that uh, fraudulent certification or uh, uh, is not uh, is, is under control or extremely well regulated. So yeah, in effect, vaccine passports do end up increasing burdens for governments, but at the same time, they do open up you know business and trade and all of these uh, sort of monetary and material and economic benefits that come in. So it's just a question of trade-offs, right? And balancing such conflicting considerations. Definitely. That's something that I wanted to ask you, that considering that there are significant upsides to vaccine passports, while there are other trade-offs that must be made in order to be able to access those uh, upsides of vaccine passports, do you think in the future, there's a possibility that vaccine passports could be managed or ideated or imagined in a more ethical fashion than they are currently? Yeah, if COVID is indeed here to stay, right, for the next two years, three years, four years, how many ever years it's here to stay, I think there's no denying that vaccine passports or immunity passports are an absolute certainty in the near future. They are going to happen particularly in the context of international travel, because there are already so many precedents that permit vaccine passports. So it doesn't make sense in that in, in one way to not have them, right? How do we make them more ethical than they are at present? So going back to what I had mentioned about uh, perspective and the lens from which you look at a, part- at a certain policy, So I would say that the first or most important, and I think this need not be limited to vaccine passports, it it depends, it's important for basically every single public health related initiative, policy and program, right? So it is about a change in, it it is idealistic, uh, understandably it is idealistic, but we need to call for changes in perspective to a humanistic sort of lens, one that is based on solidarity amongst uh, between communities, solidarity between individuals, solidarity between states. And so this change or this overhaul of perspectives should, should happen at both a micro, meso, and a macro level, right? And after that, it's about balancing these conflicting considerations that we've spoken about all through, right? It's about balancing the risks 
and the harms and weighing the benefits and the potential harms and seeing whether or not the potential harms could have in, in unintended effects of greater harm right on a more practical scale i will go back to saying what i had mentioned a very slow and staggered implementation is possibly the best solution to it a phased approach one that incorporates the uh, the in- introduction of data as it comes because every single day there is new data on how the infection spreads the new strains that are coming in um i i reiterate about how vaccine passports should not be required for employment housing and uh, access to basic essentials like food shelter uh, you know stuff like that so that is one certainty that states should keep in mind and uh, one other way to sort of implement a vaccine passport system is to ensure that there are sufficient alternatives that back vaccine passports for people who don't have va- va- access to vaccines yet uh, so one way would be to have a more rigorous system of uh, rt pcr testing uh, despite the error rates and uh, high possibility of false positives and false negatives it's still important to have this as a sufficient alternative to those who are unable currently to vaccinate themselves and finally this is a again very very idealistic sort of almost utopian suggestion right wherein countries ought to wait till vaccine distribution reaches to all adults beyond the priority list before going all out to implement vaccine passports i don't think that will be the case i do believe the hurry with which everyone wants to attain normalcy countries are most likely to start implementing vaccine passports before a majority of their population is vaccinated yeah i think an attempt should be made although from a normative point of view to ensure that adults beyond the priority list beyond your elderly beyond your healthcare workers vaccines ought to be available to them at the very least before implementing vaccine passports on a full scale so these are some solutions that uh, I can envisage in uh, uh, in order to make vaccine passports more ethical with this very utopian uh, vision that all adults across the globe beyond priority group only after they are vaccinated should we think about you know attaining true normalcy in some sense because even if there are vaccine passports there will be setbacks unless there's global equity in vaccination and global distribution of vaccination uh, so with that note we'd like to come to the end of our interview thank you matvi for joining us on the podcast series healthy dose this happens to be our last episode and it was great to have you with us on this episode it was lovely being on the episode with you guys thank you so much This brings us to the end of this episode and to the end of the first season of Healthy Dose. Thank you so much for tuning in. What a wonderful journey it has been. We started this season with the idea of unraveling and simplifying the complex questions around vaccinations. We talked to experts about the science and regulation of vaccines, global economics and ethics of vaccination. and the logistical and infrastructural challenges of vaccination 
it has been a great learning experience for my co-host Shreya and I as researchers as we uncovered fascinating aspects of the world of vaccines. Healthy Dose is a podcast brought to you by the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. We would like to thank our guests for their time and insights. We could not have done this without feedback and support from our colleagues Kim and Akshar and our team lead Dr. Dhwani Mehta. We would also like to thank Rajeshri Seeth for providing us with research assistance. Most importantly, we would like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the first season of the podcast series Healthy Dose. This season has been produced by Nitin Shamsuddin and we have had Akhil Tom Prakash on board for its visual design. Healthy Dose is available as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and Google Podcasts. For any feedback or questions, write to us at health at vidhilegalpolicy.in. Through Healthy Dose, we promise to continue to bring detailed and meaningful conversations on all things health law and policy. Until then, don't forget to stay safe and stay healthy. Goodbye.